It was the late 60s, the heydays of the feminist movement, and there was a women's studies expert giving a lecture in a packed hall at a university, and the purpose of her lecture was to, uh, to discuss, to bring people's attention to, to the many contributions that women have made to society, which had been overlooked by the patriarchy. And so she would describe several of these, and then she had a refrain. She would say, where would man be today if not for woman? Well, about halfway through her talk, she said that refrain again. Where would man be today if not for a woman? And a voice came from the back of the hall saying, he'd be in the garden eating strawberries. <laughs> the Garden of Eden represents uh, the original harmony that humanity had with God, with each other, and with nature. And our first parents were put to a test. And it's described as this tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that represented was not that they would know the difference between right and wrong, because already God was speaking to them directly, so they knew. But rather, the power to determine for themselves good and evil. This was the temptation. And so, Satan, who's described as a subtle creature, the serpent, begins to so doubt, questions, and then he directly contradicts the word of God. Uh, and then he, he basically, he lies to them about what will happen. And so he says to them, first, did God really say? And then you certainly will not die. And then you shall be like gods. This is, there's a formulation of this that was uh, put out in the 1990s by the U.S. Supreme Court at the heart of liberty is to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. This was in the Supreme Court decision that was affirming abortion rights. It was this idea of radical self-determination which would allow for us to kill our children. It is a temptation to assume for ourselves the prerogatives of God to create a reality of our own choosing and not accept what God has given us. Many have decided they can create a reality apart from God's word, but even apart from reason and common sense. We see this very clearly in transgender ideology. Now, what is being said in transgender ideology is that someone, a, a male, uh, can have feelings that they are the other sex and that those feelings are determinative. That their body should be mutilated, that others should have to go along with this self-understanding. Uh, and this is, this is obviously wrong. Now this is something that follows decades after the beginning of the sexual revolution. So that's when this process starts. You see, God has clearly, clearly given us a purpose for, for our sex, for being male and female and for the act of sex, to unite a man and woman in lifelong marriage and to make babies. The church has always believed that romantic love is good, that, that uh, sex is good, that marriage is good, that children are good, and that God means for these to go together. But in the sexual revolution, we decided we would separate these from each other. And we would, we would decide for ourselves what the meaning and purpose of sex was. 
And so we see in the transgender ideology a radical rejection of the reality that God has given us. We know uh, what God has said. Male and female, he made them. Uh, we know uh, when it comes overall to the purpose of sex, right? That a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two become one flesh. God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. But all these things that have been revealed to us in Scripture, we know through common sense and, and through biology. A man right, is uh, an adult male, which means that his physiology, which is programmed into his DNA, is ordered to donating genetic material to a woman and for him to be father. Her physiology is ordered to receive that, combine it with her egg, to gestate that new life, to nurture it and to be mother. And this is true even if you never get married and, and never have kids, this is what your, your body is designed for, and this is why we are male and female. So there was uh, an initial attempt to, um, uh, to accept transgender ideology back in the 1970s, and John Hopkins University was the first place that started to do sex change surgeries. That's what they used to call them. And there's a man named Dr. Paul McHugh who was the head of psychiatry at John Hopkins University, so he was involved in doing the psychiatric evaluations of candidates for surgery. And initially he went along with it, but over the years he studied and followed up with the people who went through the surgery. And he saw in fact that while initially they were happy with this change, that they actually had higher rates of suicide than, than, than pre-surgery people who struggled with this gender confusion. We should be sensitive to people who have um, confusion about their sex, of course. But sadly, our promotion of this ideology has caused many more children who would never have questioned their maleness or femaleness to begin to have these questions. We can see this. The stats clearly show this. There, wasn't, there was very, very few people who were experiencing this before, and now there are many, many more. So we're actually creating this problem. It's coming from the outside. What Dr. McHugh found, actually, is that this really is an issue of of the mind not accepting the body and so through mental and spiritual kinds of love and therapy this tension can be can be relieved and, and people can come to accept their bodily reality the solution is not um, mutilation of a person so we have come to accept this and, and many of us actually um, are just afraid to challenge it because it's become this, this uh, dominant, dominant belief that if you, if you don't accept it, you're a hater or something like that. And this is actually very manipulative. Um, there is a subtlety to this, and there's always a subtlety uh, to temptation. This is what Satan does in the beginning, and we see him do it again with Jesus. And the t I want to look at the three temptations that Jesus undergoes. So the first thing that Satan says to him is, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. It was entirely understandable if Jesus would want to eat some bread, and if Jesus has the power to do that, why not do that, right? You see, Satan can make some good points. Uh, but Jesus rejects that. Why? There's something else going on we can see in Jesus' response. There's a philosophy that Satan is suggesting, which is that man's good is exclusively his physical well-being. 
Okay? And that's why Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Okay? Um, we have also come to accept that false philosophy in many ways. A few years ago, uh, because of COVID, which, yes, it, it killed some people, but it wasn't like the, the Black Plague of the, of the 14th century. We completely upended our lives and did many things in overreaction that caused more harm. Why? Because we believe that our exclusive good is our physical well-being. And some people would like to see the church just focus on being like a social services agency. We don't need the prayer and liturgy and these other things. But you see, look, suppose we are able to guarantee everyone, you know, uh, health, health and, and physical well-being. Okay, but in the end, they're all going to die. <laughs> so in the long run, we haven't done them much good. This is not why Jesus primarily established the church. He did so for our eternal salvation. So it is of a higher order, our spirit, our soul, our character. Okay, the next thing that Satan does, he takes him to the parapet of the Jerusalem temple in the holy city. And he says to him, jump. Because, and then he quotes scripture. Scripture says that God will send his angels so that you won't even dash your foot against a stone. Now, I want you to think about this. What if Jesus did this, okay? Who's in, around the temple? All the important people. The Sadducees are there. The Pharisees are there. All the people who later, who would make Jesus' life so difficult. So imagine he jumps off the temple, and he's suspended in the middle of the air in front of everybody. Before he even begins his public ministry, he'd pretty much get everyone to accept him as the Messiah, right? Uh, but Jesus... First of all, Jesus responds by also quoting scripture from Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to, a t to the test, which means you shall not demand that God prove his love for you by, by doing, doing something. Huh? Uh, but you can say, okay, well, Jesus could have done this, but, but no, Jesus was called to be the suffering servant. He was called to save us not by some uh, display of power or, or wonder, but rather through the gift of himself on the cross. And this can be a temptation for us as well. We would prefer quick, easy, flashy solutions to our problems instead of the self-emptying which marks true love, which is the embrace of the cross. Finally, Satan promises Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And notice Jesus doesn't dispute that they are Satan's to give. Because human beings have joined Satan in rebellion against God, he has, in a sense, a kind of legal claim to all of this. And so Satan is saying, you don't have to fight me to take this back. Uh, I'll give it to you. One catch. You have to worship me. Jesus responds, he says, the Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. In our pursuit of something good, often we can choose means which themselves are evil. You've heard of the saying, the ends do not justify the means. So for example, you can, you can very much want to be very successful uh, because you want to use that success to help your family and other people, but in the process you may do things that are in and of themselves wrong. You may lie, cheat, steal. You may work so hard that you neglect your family for many years. But here you're all thinking, well, but then I'm going to be able to do all this good. 
Certain things, when we do them, cause us to lose our souls. Jesus would later present this haunting question. He, he asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? Satan says to Adam and Eve, ye shall be like gods. But there's an irony to what Satan is saying. The reader of Genesis has read something already that maybe wasn't told to Adam and Eve. What has the reader of Genesis read? That God made them in his image and likeness. They are already like God. God further desires to divinize them, to have them fully participate in the divine life. This is the plan that we know fully revealed in Jesus Christ. We see uh, in the second reading that through Adam, how sin and death and all the problems enter the world. But Paul tells us how much more did the gracious gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow for many. And so we are divinized in Christ, not apart from God. Probably you've heard it said that God has a plan for your life, and he does, and it's good for us to believe that. It's good for us to talk to God about that. But what you may not think about is that Satan also has a plan for your life. As long as we stay united to Jesus, we will defeat the plan of the evil one. The first step in resisting temptation and defeating Satan's plan is to expose the lie. And what does Jesus do every time? He goes back to the word of God. He goes back to scripture. The word of God revealed to us in scripture and sacred tradition and the constant teaching of the church. Sadly, some so-called progressive Christians have distorted the constant teaching of the church, even some bishops and cardinals. And they say, like Satan said, did God really say that? If you're confused, you can always go back to the catechism that was put out by St. John Paul II. You can always go back. That's a clear guide to what God has revealed. And yes, God really said it. He said it because he loves you. He wants what's best for you. He is not holding out on, on you. You can trust him. His plan is to make you more than like another God. It is to make you his son his daughter, in his son, Jesus Christ, to share with him everlasting life and glory.